0: Keywords, Words, Volume One, by Chan Master Sheng Yen. Four Views of Chan, from Chan Newsletter Number 52, February 1986, spoken at the Great Taoist Center, Washington D.C. Let me begin with the Gong An. In the Tang Dynasty, 618 to 907. There was a Chan patriarch named Yao Shan Wei Yan, 750 to 834, whose disciple asked him, "Before first patriarch Bodhidharma came, was there Chan in China?" The master replied, "Yes, Chan was already in China." In that case, the disciple continued, "Why did Bodhidharma come to China?" The master said, "Precisely because Chan was already here." He brought Chan to China. So you see, I've come to Washington because Chan is already here. I've come here because all of you know about Chan. Those who know something about Chan, please raise your hands. Those of you who didn't raise your hands probably know more than those who did. Tonight, I will talk about Chan from four points of view. These topics should help you to raise some questions about Chan, the theory of Chan. The Experience of Chan, The Goal of Chan, and Chan Training. Theory of Chan There is really no theory in Chan. If we theorize about Chan, then it is not Chan. Chan cannot be understood by logical reasoning, nor can it be explained in words. Nevertheless, I will use some theoretical description in my talk. There are two basic concepts associated with Chan. One is causes and conditions, the other is emptiness. These concepts are inextricably linked. They cannot be separated. When we talk about causes and conditions and emptiness, we are really talking about the nature of existence, which is temporary and impermanent. All phenomena arise due to the coming together of underlying causes and conditions. Correspondingly, all phenomena perish due to causes and conditions. In China, Taoists and Confucians use a divining system based on the Yi Yi means continual, constant change. More specifically, it means constant arising. This means that causes and conditions continually change. Therefore, phenomena that arise from this matrix are themselves ever-changing. That is to say, impermanent. Sentient beings perceive things as arising and then perishing, but in the eating there is no perishing, only constant arising. Seeing something disappear, you will miss seeing something else arising. In the Buddhist view, when causes and conditions change, new phenomena arise. But because this arising is rooted in constantly changing causes and conditions, the phenomena that arise can themselves be nothing more than temporary. Because they only have temporary existence, they are said to have no enduring self-identity. Hence, these phenomena are said to be empty. Emptiness only means that there is no unchanging, enduring existence. It doesn't mean that nothing exists at all. Phenomena can come into existence, arise, only because they are intrinsically empty. Moreover, because they are empty there is nothing permanent about them. If things never changed, there would be no arising. If nothing changed in our present configuration here, it would mean that this lecture would go on indefinitely. But actually, when my talk ends, the configuration will change. If everything were unchanging and solid, if there were no emptiness, then this lecture would go on forever. It is precisely because of the present situation this particular configuration of constantly changing causes and conditions, that we are all gathered in this room. Therefore, when we talk about Chan, we find that it is just a word, a bit of terminology. Very few people can say what it is. For over a thousand years, Chan masters and their disciples have been asking questions like, What did Buddhidharma bring to China? Many people have sought the answers to these questions, but the masters never gave direct answers. Some simply ignored the questions, or if they didn't ignore the question, they give very simple answers. Master Zhaozhou was visited by two monks. The master asked the first monk, been here before? The monk said, Shifu, this is my first time. Please have some tea, said the master. The second monk wanted Zhaozhou to confirm his Chan experience. In response, Zhao Zhou said, Please have some tea. Zhao Zhou's attendant was quite puzzled. Shifu, I don't understand. When the Venerable wanted you to confirm his chan, you just invited him to tea. Zhao Zhou whispered into his attendant's ear, Please have some tea. There is another story along the same lines involving Zhao Zhou. Two monks were arguing, and one of them said, Master Zhao Zhou said that a person has Buddha nature, but a dog doesn't. The second disciple said, That's impossible. He could not have said anything like that. They both went to see Zhao Zhou. One said, Shifu, you couldn't possibly have said anything like that. Zhao Zhou said, You're right. The other disciple insisted, I'm positive that is what you said. The master said, You're right. A third person the master's attendant said But Shifu, only one of them can be right, to which Zhao Zhou said, You're right. These stories sound like nonsensical exchanges, but the underlying idea is that existence or non existence, ideas of right or wrong are things which only live in your own mind, your personal experience, your knowledge. These things can't be Chan. Experience of Chan. The experience of Chan must be personal and direct. It cannot come from education or arrived at by logic. In a retreat, I will often try to help a student experience Chan by telling him to bring himself to the state of mind that existed before he was born. After birth, we begin to acquire experience, so when we practice, we try to look beyond what we have learned. Before your life began, who were you? What was your original face? How would you answer these questions? There is a story of a Chan master who told his disciple to wash a piece of coal until it was white. The monk complained that it was simply impossible. Another somewhat dim-witted disciple took the coal and began to wash it. He didn't have a thought other than his master telling him to wash the coal. One day, he asked the master why the charcoal was still not white. The master asked him, isn't it already white? The monk took another look at it and said, indeed it is white, it has always been white. When most of us look at charcoal, we see black, but the master and disciple saw it as white. In Chan, we say that training and practice will make our discriminations disappear. These thoughts and feelings of liking or disliking come from our experience. If you can go back to the state before you were born, then you arrive at the point where discriminations do not exist. It no longer matters whether something is black or white. What is important is that your mind is free from discrimination and conceptualization. During the Northern and Southern dynasties, 420 to 589, a well-known Taoist hermit and scholar named Tao Hong Jin had the respect of the emperor who asked Tao to be his minister. When Tao declined, the emperor wanted to know what was in the mountains that attracted him so much, that he preferred hermitage to the glories of the court. Tao answered with a poem. You ask me what I find in the mountains. I say, white clouds are in the mountains. This I alone can enjoy. It is not something I can offer you. The emperor read the poem and thought something made no sense. White clouds can be seen anywhere, not just in the mountains. But the point was that the white clouds that Tao Hongjin saw were quite different from the ones the emperor could see. This is the nature of individual experience. A hermit's vision of the Tao is different from that of an emperor. The famous Tang dynasty poet and monk, Han Shan, when asked what he owned would answer, The clouds serve as my blanket, the earth is my bed, the mountains my pillow, and the four seas are not big enough for a bath or a somersault. That was his experience of oneness with nature. He saw no separation between himself and the world. But people thought that he had nothing. His sandals were made from tree bark, his trousers from leaves. Only after you've put down everything you have acquired since birth can true Chan manifest. I tell my students to first separate their thoughts into past, the present, and future. Then I tell them to discard the past, then the future, leaving only the present moment. Next is to let go of the present moment, which is only a bridge between past and future. When you let go of the present moment, Chan can manifest, but only at the most elementary level. Here's a question that might occur to you. If we discard our experiences until we reach the state before our birth, does this mean that a newborn baby is closest to Chan? No, a newborn baby does not know about Chan because its mental faculties are hardly developed and it is not in control of them. The control of mental functioning is necessary. When you have this control, then you can let go of knowledge and reasoning then there is a possibility that Chan can manifest. If you knock someone unconscious, is that Chan? That is nonsense. If you know nothing of past or future and your mind is just a blank, that is also not Chan. A mind that is blank in this way is a very tired mind. Only a very clear, alert mind can experience Chan. I can describe the experience of Chan by comparing a bowl of water with a mirror. A bowl of water will move at the slightest touch, but a mirror is unmoving. A mirror can be obscured by dust, but remove the dust and it will reflect clearly. Agitated water will reflect only a distorted image. The movement in water is like the movement in our minds. Our minds move because of the knowledge we have and the experience we have acquired. Because of these things, we are constantly making judgments. Just as moving water is a poor reflector, a moving mind cannot see clearly. At that time, what we see or think we see is illusory, not real. For example, there are about 50 people here. You have different backgrounds, different experiences, and different levels of education. Because of these differences, each of you will hear the same thing a little differently. Each of you will judge this lecture in your own way. It may be one lecture, but it could also be 50 different lectures. That is not Chan. If it were truly Chan, when one person spoke, it would be as if there was one person listening. And were that the case, there would be no need for me to open my mouth. You would know what I was going to say before I said it. In the early days of the Chan, the emperor asked a certain master to give a discourse. To prepare for the occasion, the emperor commanded his workmen to build an elaborate platform from which the master would speak. When the time arrived, the master mounted the platform, sat down, and then quickly left. The emperor was quite surprised. The master said, I've said everything I wanted to say. The unspoken dharma and only the unspoken dharma is the highest dharma. Whatever can be said or described is not the real dharma. Chan masters have been saying this for many, many years. When we compare the clarity of reflection in water to that of a mirror, a perfectly clean mirror reflects better than still water. Even so, the sixth patriarch, Huineng pointed out that intrinsic mind was not a mirror that needed to be wiped clean. So to speak of the mind being like a mirror is not Chan. Nonetheless, today we use the mirror as an analogy to make a point. Later, we will throw out the mirror. A mirror reflects what is external to itself. If a person's mind is in a mirror-like state, everything outside is reflected as it is, without distortion. For such a person, there is no self involved. What he sees and feels is only phenomena. For when there is no self, there is no discrimination, of liking or disliking. But this is not the ultimate state, because there is still a self that is aware of the environment. Someone in this state is certainly in a unified state, because there seems to be no self, and only the environment seems to exist. This is one mind, but it is still not the no mind of true Chan. True Chan cannot be compared to an all-reflecting mirror, since phenomena still exist without the mirror. In the true Chan state, everything is seen very clearly, but there is no concept of outside or inside. Existing or not existing. Having or not having. The goal of Chan. What is the good of the Chan experience? For myself and many others, there are so many benefits to Chan practice. These benefits can be seen on three levels. First, there is a health benefit. There are mental balance and good mental health, and lastly, a spiritual benefit. The potential to become enlightened. The reason for an unhealthy body is really just psychological imbalance. By helping a practitioner attain a more stable mind, Chan practice can improve physical and mental health. Chan practice can also strengthen mental power and capacity. Even with ill health, a practitioner will have a positive attitude and will not be hindered from doing what he or she needs to do. Good mental health is a fundamental aim of the practice. But in the beginning physical strength is acquired through sitting practicing in this way helps maintain and focus the flow of energy or chi taoism and yoga also share this aspect of practice of course the highest benefit of practice is the genuine chan experience enlightenment but what good is enlightenment i can only say this before enlightenment There are things that one needs and things one would rather be without. There are things that one likes and things one does not like. After enlightenment, there is no such thing as needing or not needing, liking or not liking. Do you understand? That's why I said that all of you already know Chan. You see, before we are enlightened, we have many vexations, and there are many things that we have to do. There are many things that we don't want to do. We may seek and attain enlightenment, but once we have experienced it, there is no longer any such thing as enlightenment. At this point, there is nothing that we have to do, nothing that we don't have to do. Before he became a famous Chan master, Lin Ji Yixuan, 866, was studying with Master Huang Bo Xiyun, 850. When Lin Ji became enlightened, Huang Po did not become aware of Lin Ji's realization. One day, Huang Po was making his rounds to see that all of the monks were practicing hard. He came upon Lin Ji lying down on his mat, fast asleep. The master knocked on the floor with his staff and asked Lin Ji, how can you be so lazy when everyone around you is practicing diligently? Lin Ji just looked up at Huang Po and went back to sleep. Huang Pu walked over to another monk who was practicing very hard. Huang Pu hit the monk with several stiff blows and pointed to Lin Ji. There's someone over there practicing Chan. What are you doing, idling like this? The master's oldest disciple said to himself, "This old monk has really gone crazy." From that point on, Lin Ji didn't remain sleeping. He traveled to spreading the Dharma. The lineage that evolved from him is called the Lin Ji sect. Japanese, Rinzai. Linji's story shows that after enlightenment, there is nothing, no practice or striving that is needed for oneself. There are only other sentient beings to work for and to help. Chan Training. Chan Training can be seen as occurring at three levels. First, we go from a scattered mind to a concentrated mind. Second, We move from concentrated mind to one mind. And finally, we let go of even one mind and reach no mind. The scattered mind is easy to see. We are all aware of this state where thoughts come and go in a haphazard manner. Let's try an experiment. Everyone raise your index finger and look at it. Just look and don't think. Do this in a relaxed manner. All right, we did that for 30 seconds. Were you able to do it without thinking? If you couldn't do it, you had a scattered mind. When we do things with a scattered mind, we are not using it to our fullest capacity. Master Zhao Zhou once told his disciples, Chan practice is like this. When you're hungry, eat. When you're tired, sleep. One monk said, I know how to eat and sleep. Everybody knows that. So is everybody practicing Chan? The master said, No, when you eat, your mind is not on eating, and when you sleep, your mind is either filled with dreams or lost in a muddled blankness. Once, in our center in New York, we hired a carpenter to do some work. He was nailing something to a wall when he saw a pretty woman passing by the window. He hit his finger and twisted the nail and had to start all over again. Where was his mind? It certainly was not on his work. Most of us function like this. Therefore, we must use special methods to bring our scattered mind into a concentrated state. Do as Zhao Zhou said, When hungry, eat. When tired, sleep. When you practice, keep your mind concentrated. Then if you hear a sound, see or feel something, whatever you do, you will be doing just that and nothing else. This is concentration. When you expand this state further, you will eventually get to the point where the separation between self and environment disappears. There is no distinction between you and the world. If you are repeating a mantra, you become one with the mantra. There are many levels to this state. At the elementary level, you and your method of practice become one. A deeper state is when whatever your senses perceive, what you see and hear is just yourself. At this point, there is no distinction between what you see and what you hear. The sense organs no longer have separate functions. This is an intermediate level. Deeper still is the state where you sense a boundless universe within yourself. This is still not Chan. From here, we must use the methods of Chan, such as Gong An and the Hua Tou, to shatter the one mind. In this way, we can reach Chan, enlightenment.